Well, our main Bible reading is Luke chapter 1. We're going to read from verse 26 to 38. And it says this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will be no end. And Mary says to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Well, we're going to have a look at that um, in a moment. Before we do, there's a few things to mention. The first is question time. That will come at the end of the sermons. The second is your sermon outline, which you can use or abuse at your will. And finally, let's pray and ask God to help us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together where we can spend time exploring the mystery of your Son's incarnation. We thank you that you sent him to us for us and our salvation, that we might know you and be reconciled to you. And we thank you that he dwells with us, and in him dwelling with us, we will one day be able to dwell with you. Amen. Well, last week we explored the unique contribution that Christian teaching makes on creation, which is God creates out of nothing. But what's the significance of God creating out of nothing? Well, what this means is when God created the whole world, he didn't depend upon anything else outside of him. And this means that God's act of creation is sovereign. He has total power and does not rely upon some other power or some other material which means God's act of creation is completely free now as we begin this morning it would be helpful to briefly explore 
the relationship between creation, fall, and redemption. So obviously God creates the world, and the fall compromises God's creation, and therefore redemption's work is an undoing of the fall. Now there are three views of how this plays out. One view is that God created the world, and when he did so, it was finished and perfect. The fall then takes creation away from that perfection, and so redemption simply simply restores it to how it was at the beginning. In the second view, the world's in a process And that process is a process of being perfected. Now in that process, the fall is either a brief hiccup or the fall is actually a necessary contribution to the process. And this is what we might call an evolutionary view of creation. Of course, this immediately has problems. Because do you notice how evil is played down and the cross actually becomes redundant? The third and final view is that creation has a purpose. But because of the fall, creation can only reach its purpose by redemption. Redemption removes evil so that the original created order is restored. Colin Gunton says, Redemption is not simply a return to a primal beginning, but it's a movement towards an end that is greater than the beginning. Now this third view is preferable to both the other views. What we have is this purpose and progression in redemption, It's not just about reverting back to how it was at the beginning. Also, evil is taken seriously and dealt with so that the cross does have meaning. Now, in order to begin our exploration this morning, what I want to do is start with the spirit. And once we've engaged with that or with him for a bit, we'll then move on to the Son. And to do this, I'd like to begin by reading from Romans 4, verse 16. So Romans 4, verse 16 says this. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, referring to Abraham not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now in this brief passage, Paul is referring back to the account of Abraham. 
And notice that reference is made to the promise that Abraham will be father of many nations. Now this was a promise that God made to Abraham despite his age and despite the age of his wife. The fact that she was barren. Given the age of Abraham and Sarah, their bodies, with regards to having children, were considered dead. But as the passage ends in verse 17, we see that God is spoken of in terms of creator. He is the one who brings life to the dead. In fact, he calls into existence the things that do not exist. So given this, the fatherless Abraham was right to believe the promise that he would be the father because his confidence was in the creator. And God, of course, gave Abraham a child through his barren wife, Sarah. Now, this is a helpful introduction to the birth of Jesus. We read a moment ago when Mary is told she will have a baby, she's confused. How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the response comes back. This will be the work of the Holy Spirit. So verse 35 of Luke 1. We read, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called the Holy, called Holy, the Son of God. Now, sometimes when it comes to the virgin birth, it's used to make the case that Jesus is divine. But this detracts from the actual point. This is a new humanity. God who created the world will recreate it and will do so through a recreation beginning with a new Adam. To quote Gunton, this new humanity is formed within the womb of Mary of earthly material in such a way that creation is renewed from within. And it's the spirit that initiates this recreation of the fallen world. Because he's the one who brings about the incarnation of the Son. Now we already have a precedence for the Spirit's work in perfecting creation. Because he was present back at creation. So Genesis 1 verse 2 it was the Spirit of God that was hovering over the face of the waters. In Genesis 2 verse 7, we have God breathed the breath of life into man's nostrils. God's breath being God's Spirit. We can go further to Ezekiel 37. It's the Spirit that brings life. In this case, life to the dead bones. So we've briefly considered the Spirit's role in creation. Now let's turn to 
Christ's. Now what I'd like to do is have a look at Colossians 1, verse 16. And it says this. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. What we see from these two verses is God creates God the Father creates the world, and he does it through his Son. This immediately makes the Son co-creator with the Father. Then if we focus in on the last bit of verse 17, and in him all things hold together, we can ask the question, in what sense are all things held together in Christ. Well, what this achieves is twofold. First, we need to be able to affirm that God is able to remain distinct from creation. Otherwise, we risk falling into some sort of pantheism. Now, pantheism is when God and the world become one and the same. They become so integrated that they cannot be distinguished. God becomes part of his creation. But the problem is God becomes lost in his creation. We can't know him. So immediately alarms set off because if God is part of his creation, he ceases to be the uncreated creator and he becomes dependent upon his creation. So what we need to do is to be able to affirm that God is external and distinct from his creation. We need to keep him separate. But second, this raises another problem. If God is distinct from our creation, or even distant from our creation, is he then in danger of becoming so distant we fall into deism, where God has no relationship with his creation. It's just the clock he has set to run. And this is where Christology provides the solution. Because in Christ, all things hold together. When the Son becomes part of the creation, as the Creator who holds all things together, God remains distinct from creation, while at the same time he's in a loving relationship with his creation through his Son. Christology ensures that God remains external to creation, so not to fall into pantheism. 
while also ensuring God remains in relation to creation so as not to fall into deism. Now when we read the Gospels and we reflect upon the miracles of Jesus, it's far too simplistic to conclude he carried out these miracles to prove that he was divine or even to stir up faith in him. There's actually much more taking place. So earlier on we read Mark 4 verse 41. And there we have the well-known account of Jesus calming the storm, which concludes with the disciples filled with great fear as they ask one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This question has a rhetorical tinge to it. Of course the disciples know that only the one, only one who can speak and the wind and the sea will obey is the creator. They would have concluded this not just from Genesis 1 but Psalm 33, Psalm 104, Psalm 139 and Job 38 and 41. Creation obeys no one apart from the one who brings it into existence out of nothing. So Gunson says, Jesus is not merely a teacher, but one exercising, or rather reasserting, God's lordship over the created order. He goes on to explain, we shouldn't distinguish between Miracles of healing, for example, that can perhaps be explained in other terms, and so-called nature miracles. Rather, all are of a kind in the respect that they're concerned with God's sovereignty over the created order. So when Jesus exorcises demons, Jesus is freeing the creation order that has had to endure slavery under the power of Satan. When Jesus heals those that are sick or raises the dead, he demonstrates as the creator he's able to recreate the world. A large part of Jesus' time on earth is demonstrating that he has the power to redeem it because he has the power to reverse the effects of the fall. Now last week we ended our sermon with a brief exploration of time. While today we've seen how God's purpose for creation unfolds in and over time. When the sun becomes part of creation, he enters into time. And God, in time and over time, fulfills his purpose for creation. God intends to recreate the world and he achieves this from within creation when he sends his son by the spirit to become part of the creation. And Jesus demonstrates that he has the authority to recreate the world because he is the uncreated creator. 
So what we've seen over these last two weeks is, is that creation is an act of the Trinity. God the Father creates through his Son and his Spirit. And so to recreate the world, the Trinity must fulfil those purposes that were established back at creation. So that God's creation will not come to ruin. So it's the God who is Trinity that creates. So it must be the God who is Trinity who recreates. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for our reflections over the last couple of weeks. How we've been able to uh, delve a little bit deeper into the mystery of your incarnation or your son's incarnation. We thank you that you uh, sent him into the world so that you could remain distinct from the world and yet be in relationship to it. We thank you in all this that you remain knowable. We don't lose you because you become part of creation or we don't lose you because you become too distant but rather you are the God who makes himself known and can be known by those you've brought into existence. We thank you chiefly how we can know you through the redemptive work of your Son, that's empowered by the work of your Spirit, and driven according to your purpose. Amen. Well, I hope those two weeks have made sense. Um, we're going to probably find out now. Um, it feels like we're introducing some stuff we've done before, maybe some new stuff, maybe putting it together in a slightly different way than maybe we have done in the past. Any questions, comments or thoughts? Yes, Nikki. Yes, let me repeat the question for recording and I guess the comment because um, I'm going to just affirm what you've said so um, we we mentioned three options at the start the first one being um, God created the world perfect and finished and then the fall takes place and redemption just brings it back to perfection but then the third view we said was preferable that's where God creates the world the fall takes place but then the redemption sets the world back on God's created purpose and there is a direction and a purpose and a perfecting of it 
um, so that the end is in some way um, progressed from the start. And Mickey said, is that better because of how we know Jesus, we, uh, we know God, we know God as Trinity and that sort of thing? And yeah, the answer is yes. Um, so, <clears throat> I mean, there's other things that we've looked at before, maybe in the past. So obviously you start in Eden in a garden, and then when you get to Revelation, it becomes a garden city. And I think some, <clears throat> if you remember back in Genesis 1.28-ish, there's that sense in that God says, have dominion over the world and fill the earth. So immediately he's saying, you know, go and do something with this. You know, go and fill the earth with people, you know, progress as it were. So there's, there's a hint of it there. <clears throat> and of course, then when you get to Revelation 22, that sort of, it's now filled, it's now uh, a city, it's not just a garden, it's, it's filled with people living and that sort of thing. So that, there's that side of things. There's also that um, the knowledge side of things, as you referenced. So what's interesting, <clears throat> what we've been doing these last few weeks is, the original readers of Genesis wouldn't have read Genesis and thought, oh, the Trinity, the Trinity. Uh, look, the Trinity has created the world. We know that because we read what's affirmed in the New Testament back when we go to Genesis 1. Um, there's allusions to the spirits, and we've mentioned Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and also Ezekiel 37. There's hints of the sun, but probably so subtle we wouldn't have got them unless the New Testament authors had exposed them. Um, but it's only then when we read, yeah, when creation and redemption unravels that we see and appreciate the full extent of that. Uh, and part of that is, we've said before, isn't it? The sun comes, and now you know God's Father. Um so there's that sense in that the things have progressed as well. And there's, there's a sense as well that we're being perfected by the Spirit. So we made a brief allusion to the perfecting work of the Spirit. Um, but if you think in terms of how we're being sanctified for the day when we'll be glorified, that's all um, suggesting a, a progression as well. So... Um, I mean, the nice thing about the third one is it takes the strengths of the first and the strengths of the second. Well, it's hard to say the second's got many strengths because it's so, but just that progressive, progressive nature and, and puts them both in a, in a workable and biblical uh, position. Uh, Nathan? Thank you. 
Good question. Interesting. Let me repeat the uh, the question. Um, so, we've said that um, because Christ became part of creation, that means um, God is able to remain distinct from creation, but he's also able to remain in relation to creation because Christ is uh, part of creation. But that raises the question, what's happening before Christ takes on that role? So before he becomes incarnate and part of the world, you have potentially this mysterious part where... God's in limbo. Um, yes, good question. Um, well, that can't be the case. That's going to cause more problems than it solves. Um, I guess, I mean, a couple of things to be thinking about maybe the, is the best approach. I think we've got, well, interestingly, kind of going back to what we've been doing in Hebrews a little bit. So in Hebrews, we do have established how God has engaged with people through time. Um, so first one verse, uh, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in his last days, he spoke to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he has also created the world. Now, there's some shortcomings um, to how God spoke through the world back in the Old Testament, in that he's a couple of steps removed anyway. So he's speaking to the prophets, and the prophets are then engaging with the people. I guess this goes back to Nikki's question as well about the progression. So, God's able to remain distinct, um, but he's also, because he's uncreated, created, but he's also engaging with the prophets, uh, using them as his mediators. But I guess this is all got, has got to be anticipatory of his final revelation when he sends his son. And when he sends his son, that revelation is going to be... Um, fulfilled and final and then that's going to establish this position of he can be both transcendent and imminent without any problems as it were so I think there's an anticipatory element to it um, but and then of course you have got the spirit as well which I guess we haven't spoken about so the spirits work in the prophets so we know that in the Old Testament, the prophets had the spirit. So it's another way. In, I mean, interestingly, yeah, so when I've never really particularly understood it, which is why I've not left, led it, left, left it in the talk. But Gunton talks about, who is it? Irenaeus's way of talking about um, God creates through his two hands, the Son and the Spirit. And 
I kind of think I know what he means, but I don't quite know what he means. It's, I, I just don't think there's enough there for me to make sense of it. But I guess the Son and the Spirit, they are referring to his two hands. They are there in creation. They're also there in redemption. And so I guess you've got this sense in that God reveals himself as well through his two hands, as it were, his Son and his Spirit. So I think you've got the Spirit revealing is engaging with the creation as well, probably more so in the Old Testament through the prophets, so that God remains. I'm, I'm throwing the spirit in there as well. <laughs> Basically, that's my answer. Are you any thoughts? Yeah, I think so. I think that's they've got to they've got to be the confines that we're working, aren't we? Yeah, but so obviously we can't have the option that he couldn't do it prior to the pre-incarnation. But I think the incarnation stabilizes things, if you like, not for want of a better uh, metaphor. Cool. Uh, they were quite long, those two questions, but has anyone else got a... Yes, Josh. So the second option, uh, just for recording, why is the second option not really preferable? So the second option, really, we're thinking in terms of what's known as process theology uh, as one option, which is um, well, I'll let me, maybe maybe that's a mistake going there, but um, basically the idea is that God sets history up. And it's basically getting just going to get better and better and better and better. And it's it's all a pro process of perfection. Um, so first of all, you've got the problem of well, it it clearly is not starting very good because the whole thing's going forward. The because we're thinking in terms of God creates everything very good, then the fall, and God sets things off on redemption. But here we've just got a straight line up. Um, you think as well, where do you put, if you've got this straight line going up, where do you put um, the cross? Because actually in history, the cross actually heard, occurs quite early doors. You think the cross would be some sort of peak, but it's not because it, we're going straight up. So that's just an early part that sort of makes a positive contribution, but then things just keep getting better and better and better. But also, the fall is considered either a hiccup 
so you might just get a little blip here or the falls actually oh that's good because that's part of us moving forward but then if it's good then actually what does the cross do what's the cross engaging with um, the cross is meant to be sorting evil out i.e the fall but actually um, it becomes redundant um, it also causes problems as well because you think in terms of well, we're supposed to be a lot better than we were back then so um, you kind of and they're picked up um, is it well Hege ev evolution so it's sort of a Darwinism Hegel does Block come under this as well yeah Block would come under this as well so this idea so all those sort of things are just sort of like everything just keeps getting better and better and the incarnation kind of gets lost in that in fact we would be better humans than Jesus because we're later on in the the phase is that problematic yeah, enough <laughs> cool okay if everyone's happy we can leave it there um, let's sing our next song and then we'll have a brief reflection we're going to stand to sing See Amid the Winter Snow <laughs>